Stella Dadzi, Kelechi Okafor, welcome to Tell a Friend. I'll begin by introducing both of you to my audience. So, Stella Dadzi, you're an author, educator, historian, and activist. You were a member of the Organization of Women of African and Asian Descent, and you wrote the seminal book, The Heart of the Race. And Kelechi Okafor, you're an actor, writer, podcaster, and anti-racist activist. So I'll first begin by asking both of you, how have you been doing in light of the Black Lives Matter movement and you know, the crazy pandemic that we find ourselves in? Kelechi, should we start with you? Thank you. Um, and I'd just like to say what an honor it is, you know, to be here, to be in this space and, you know, to be in conversation with you both and, and you know, especially you, Stella. Um, the Heart of the Race is, a, is an incredible book. I, um, I remember reading part of it for the Tate. The Tate Exchange had a session when we were reading different chapters and that oh, was organised yeah. by one of my friends, Thicker Black Lives, Rihanna J. Parker. And, you know, it is truly a seminal piece of work. It's incredible and it's something that we keep referencing and, you know, it's something that we reference during this time as well, which is why I brought it up that how I've been kind of getting through this time is looking towards people like yourself, women who have been out here, who have been doing the work long before a lot of us even had the vocabulary for what all of this currently is. And understanding that there's space, I guess, for, um, for peace. Even, even in the midst of chaos, there is space for peace. And I think that black women should actively go out um, and, and, and seek it in, whichever ways that they can. So I, as much as I'm aware of all of the horrendous things that have happened due to the deliberate, I feel, negligence of the government, um, at the same time, I've been able to see people understand more so the importance of community and the importance of black women leadership because every time it's, oh, black women will save us, but every other time black women are denigrated, vilified, um, portrayed as angry and all of these things. But it's those very same characteristics that now everyone needs for it to come to the fore to help everybody. So I've had to be very, very um, conscious of where I'm giving my energy to just because everyone suddenly wants to be aware of race and racism and allegedly have this discussion however superficial it is and for you Stella have you felt the same way um uh, seeing how race has come into the mainstream really a lot of these conversations were not had in the mainstream circles so for you is it are you feeling quite fatigued that it's taken so long to get this conversation started no I, I wouldn't say I'm fatigued I think there is a sense that we've been here before. Um, those of us who lived through civil rights in the 60s and 70s, through the whole Black Panther era, um, and all the stuff that's gone on in between, um, certainly for us it's not new. And I think my major frustration, certainly around the Black Lives Matter narrative, has been a, a sense that um, there's a lot of people trying to reinvent the wheel um, when you think about it, a lot of the work has, has been done and I'm not saying that it's finished and I think certainly young people need to build on that work and make it their own. But I do think that it's important to stand on the shoulders of those who went before and none of this is new. Um, in terms of COVID, yeah, I agree with you. We have to find spaces that are peaceful, that... Um, restore our mental health because this is an extremely 
stressful time for for the whole world. Um, we're in a relatively privileged position, I think, compared to people in our countries of origin. And um, I think for me, what keeps me going um, at times when I feel um, myself close to despair, um, I certainly just remind myself of our long history. You know, black women have been dealing with horrors all through our history. And we've survived, we've lived to tell the tale, we've turned those experiences into song and dance and music and all kinds of other cultural forms. And we've continued to nurture our children and our communities. So I think it's quite important for us as women to just remember that past. And when we do feel low and despairing and wonder where the world is going, just remind ourselves that we, we come from a long history of struggle. And talking about the history of struggle, uh, you've got a new book out, uh, I don't know if people can see, uh, A Kick in the Belly. And it's quite a visceral title. Uh, and I was wondering, <laughs> could you begin by talking to me how you came uh, up with the title and the inspiration behind it? Um, well, the, the, the title really was given to me by um, a slave owner. He was an absentee planter called Monk Lewis. And he owned two plantations on either end of the island of Jamaica. And when he visited Jamaica in the um, early 19th century, he kept a quite detailed diary of his experience. And one of the things he remarked upon was the brutality that he um, encountered. And he actually saw two black women, he says, being kicked in the belly, one of whom was crippled as a result, one of whom had her child crippled and I, I can't quote him directly but he says something along the lines of I feel entitled to say that black women are kicked in the belly from one end of this island to the other and for me it really was a, 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 a very useful metaphor for describing the brutality that black women encountered during enslavement um, yeah I think that answers your question and in the beginning of the book, uh, you begin by talking a bit about your own um, history with history as a subject. And uh, you talk about how when you were at school, uh, words like primitive and undeveloped slipped readily from the teacher's tongues. You spoke about how a lot of your history was centered around the white narrative and around uh, how good and benevolent the white people in, and the empire was. Mm -hmm. and. If I start with you, Kalechi, could you talk to me about your own experience uh, through the education system and uh, some of the narrative that you've been fed uh, growing up? It's interesting because I was born in Nigeria and I came to England when I was five and I came here to meet my mum. My mum had come before me and I arrived and it sounds really odd when I say it to people, but at the age of five, I, I was pretty... I would say I felt like I was pretty smart. Then I got over here and I feel like this curriculum, this education system in this country sort of like brought that down. Um, it wasn't, I, I, I was, the pace that I was moving at was very, very different even at that age. Um, and the only thing that people wanted to focus on was my accent. It's not auntie, it's auntie. 
you know, things like that. So it became, it, it became about how I was saying the words and those kind of things still stay with me now, even with the breadth of, you know, knowledge that I have when it comes to vocabulary, I'm hesitant sometimes to use words that I know in and out because of, you know, these pronunciations and, and these little markers that we've put in place. And I think that all of these are tools of, in my opinion, like white supremacy and how um, it, is kind of enmeshed within the education system where you are second guessing yourself regardless of how um you know how much you know how much you know inherently how much you learn within your immediate like communities and your environments you go into that school system and it becomes this sort of mind game that starts being played with us and always feeling like an outsider so I was there and you know I'm 33 now so I've spent a lot of time here yet I still feel like an outsider when I'm looking at the um you know the curriculum we focus so much on Henry VIII we focus so much on like World War II and every time we were looking at all of these different scenarios and when we sort of glossed over the transatlantic slave trade I noticed that even at that age there was a way that Britain sort of was not involved miraculously in all of these things. It was just kind of like the onlooker. And even then I knew that something wasn't quite right because I have been a storyteller from when I was a child. So in the story, I knew that something was missing, like something was missing in the story that I was being told. But when you're a child, you mention that and everyone's like, oh, shut up. You know, you're, you, don't, you don't know what you're talking about. So as I've grown and I've seen all of these things play out, I understand now that it was deliberate. All the omissions were deliberate. Um, the destruction of documentation, all of that was deliberate because we needed to buy into a singular narrative of our um, kind of birthright to oppression and, and go with it. And, you know, the philosophers are these white men who think all of these wonderful things when actually a lot of them were just white supremacists and eugenicists, like that's what they were. Um, I look at the... Chrono, um, you know, the chronological order even of the philosophy that they um, are so proud to boast um, about. And then I look at Yoruba cosmology and Yoruba cosmology predates a lot of the things that they're talking about by at least 10,000 years. So it's, it's a coming back to self. It's a coming back to the divinity of blackness, to the divinity of black womanhood. And even if we would not have cho chosen the term of blackness for ourselves, it's this unifying experience that, yeah, it differs in certain ways, but there is a story here that we are collectively telling and we have to choose basically how it's going to end. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I, I have always operated on the assumption that if we don't tell our own stories, someone else is going to tell them for us and we won't necessarily like the way the, 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 the slant they put on those stories. I think there's no doubt whatsoever that we've been whitewashed out of history. And um, as you said, Brian, in, in my uh, book, um, A Kick in the Belly, I begin with that narrative. I begin with uh, reminding people how the story hasn't been told. As the man said, half the story hasn't been told. And how, when it is told, it's told, certainly for black women, through a lens of, of racism and misogyny. So there's a whole piece of work to be done to reclaim that history. And as an educationist, I've been in education all my life, I do believe it starts in the classroom. Now, I don't necessarily buy into the notion that it's a conscious conspiracy. I've worked with teachers through my life, many of whom... Um, are good intentioned but don't feel confident to address these issues in the classroom or who are worried about the language they use 
or who are concerned that um, the children they're teaching might react a certain way that they're not able to control. All kinds of excuses, really, for not addressing the issues. And one of my concerns, I think, is that so much focus is put on black history, um, which, is, which is a concept, really. The reality is there's no such thing as black history. There's hidden history. And that hidden history is particularly virulent in relation to our story, as you said, Kalechi. I mean, it's just the case that none of that glory has ever been acknowledged, none of the inventions, none of the um, innovations that for which our people are responsible have really been acknowledged. So for me, it's not just about reclaiming and decolonizing the history curriculum, it's about looking at the whole curriculum, you know, from the maths to the art to the science to the literature, and to reclaim that in a way that does justice to not just black people, but all the other groups who've been hidden from, from, that, from that narrative. And I do believe we have a responsibility, certainly people of my generation, I'm 68 now, Kalechi, so I'm kind of at the other end of it, but my feeling is that, you know, it's really important for us to get those stories down. And whether that means you take your mobile phone and sit down with your granddad or your grandma or somebody else in your family and get that story down, or whether you do it through some other mechanism, um, you know, we need to reclaim those stories and keep them and to use them to correct the narrative, to correct that, that skewed version that we've been sold. Um, I do believe that Black Lives Matter has, has inspired a new interest in these issues and we're beginning to see a lot more stories, a lot more references to um, Black achievement and Black involvement. I was listening to Radio 4 this morning and they were talking about a guy called Drew, was it Drew Clark, who was dis, um, instrumental in discovering blood plasma, which saved tens of thousands of lives, probably hundreds of thousands of lives during the Second World War and beyond. Um, have we ever heard that name? No, we haven't. You know, and alongside that, of course, there's not just the narratives that relate to individual achievement, which I think can can skew the story slightly. I think we also need to acknowledge the collective achievements, the, the achievements of people who are unsung, the achievements of people who are invisible, the trade unionists, as you referenced, uh, Kalechi, the nurses, you know, even, even in relation to the, the, the COVID-19 story, when you look at those early adverts telling us to support the NHS, you rarely saw a black face. And you see Boris Johnson coming out of prison, uh, prison, should be prison, sorry, <laughs> of hospital, Freudian slip, and uh, <laughs> talking about how grateful he was to the New Zealand nurse and the Portuguese nurse who saved his life. But his policies don't reflect that. His policies reflect that exclusionist, um, you know, post-Windrush approach that basically says we need to keep the hordes of blacks and others out of these islands. So... Um, there's a real disconnect between um, some of the things that our politicians say and what they actually do. And I think all of that feeds into a really strong demand to decolonize the whole of the curriculum, not just the history curriculum, but the whole of it. And to bring our children up with an honest story that tells it, warts and all. I'm not saying that we should present a narrative 
about black achievement that is all rosy. You know, we have our, our, our um, dark corners and our um, stories that we'd probably rather not tell, but that's about humanity. That's about acknowledging our shared humanity. And um, I suppose in the end, that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's about reaching a point where we recognize each other's humanity and stop demonizing or oppressing or making um, certain groups invisible by just pretending that the narrative is all about, you know, glorious white conquest. And in A Kick in the Belly, you are helping uncover some of this hidden history. But uh, as a fellow historian, I've also had issues navigating through archives, especially when you're, when you're trying to find black stories. And uh, in here, uh, you talk about some of the different ways that black women uh, resisted um, slavery and some of the, the ways that were showing their resistance. And this included here, you say, through music, storytelling, preparing food, uh, fixing their hair. These are things that aren't often documented. So how, how did you go about going through the archives and finding this information? Well, you know, it's very difficult because most of the black women, certainly in the era that the, the, the book addresses, didn't have access to pen and paper. They weren't able to tell their stories for themselves, with very few exceptions. We've got Mary Seacole's story, we've got Mary Prince's story, we've got a few others scattered around. If we're looking at the story of of enslavement in the Caribbean anyway. There were the slave narratives, of course, that were um, recorded in the Americas and, and, and that gives them a very rich body of, 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 of material to, to, to base their research upon. But in terms of my own work, I think it was very much about um, building on the work that was already being done by a whole range of Caribbean historians who started looking at the records, looking at the plantation lists, looking at the court records and the diaries and the letters and the newspapers and all that other um, material, which as historians we'd, we'd refer to as primary sources, recognizing that those primary sources are going to present our story through that misogynist, racist lens, and then trying to dig underneath and what I would refer to, listen to the music behind the words. Now, um, you know, you've only got to take, for example, a guy like um, Thistlewood, who was an overseer um, on, on a plantation in Jamaica, on a couple of plantations, who talks about his sexual conquests, who talks about rape, basically, as, a, as, a, as a part of the process of conditioning women in the way that you would break in a horse. Um, and as a black woman, standing in the shoes of the victims of that behavior, it's not hard for me to begin to second guess what that must have felt like and to begin to look for ways that women resisted. And I think um, if, we're, if we're just looking at slavery and looking at the fact that the slave trade itself was abolished in 1807, but enslavement wasn't abolished, certainly in Britain until 1833-34, then you realize that there's a whole period of time when the whole project of slavery rested on the shoulders or indeed the wombs of black, black women because without us breeding, there was no more slaves. And that, that uh, tells a very tantalizing story when you compare that 
and the, the frustrations of politicians in, in, in parliamentary debates of the time. And you compare that with the demography that shows a steady decline in the birth rate on those islands right across the British West Indians in the French Antilles and a whole range of places that could not be explained and in particular couldn't be explained because they were bending over backwards or so they said to ameliorate the conditions to encourage black women to breed. So when you begin to see that story and when you see at the end of that period how the birth rate goes whoop straight up as soon as the prospect of bringing children into freedom is presented, women began to breed and to stop the things they were doing that, that, that scuppered the master's uh, project. So I think to answer your question, Brian, we have to look, as I say, underneath the surface. Um, we don't always have the first-hand stories from black women themselves, but we have plenty of sources that provide the material we need to begin to delve into that story and to tell it in a different way. Now, <clears throat> a subject that comes up in the book and a subject that you speak about on your podcast, uh, Say Your Mind, you talk about it a lot, is about the women's body, black women's body, being a site of violence. And I was wondering, Kalechi, if you could uh, talk to me about some of the ways that black women's bodies are still exploited by society today and the different ways that that plays out. Um, I, I think, you know, just as Stella mentioned, it's, it's, it, it's a testament to the resilience of black women when you think of the things that um, one has to endure in order to have some sort of autonomy in this sort of society. And when we look at, for instance, you know, I was just thinking there as Stella was speaking about the kind of war that's waged on the wombs of black women and and what we have to collectively do to counter that so then if we look at even just still during that period um james marion sims you know uh, innovating the speculum by using the bodies of you know using enslaved black women and you know testing it out on them often with no anesthesia just like testing it out on them we know what happened you know with sarah bartman and then just having i think it was her labia on show and her skeleton in 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 france and you know the mortality rates in the uk of black women being five times more likely to die during childbirth and soon after in comparison to white women everywhere we sort of look there are there are numerous kind of points that we can just look at that shows us that the war's never really stopped when it comes to black women's bodies like the war hasn't stopped the war being waged on black women's bodies ha hasn't stopped and and war the term is intentional because it i feel like historically our bodies have been viewed as sites of like domination and experimentation and just this morbid curiosity about what's going on there ultimately why are they still alive after everything why are they still here and if they're going to still be here you know why won't they be subdued because you know we, we keep finding ways we keep finding ways to just you know continue and to, not just continue but to thrive um in so many different fields and we look at you know, when we talk about Black Lives Matter, we look at who has found, you know, who we're seeking justice for, the ones that we go forward for, and it's rarely ever Black women, you know? Black women collectively gather when something happens to Black men. 
they're you know they're at the forefront of that they go forward for it brianna taylor people are still wearing t-shirts up and down up and down up and down trying to get justice for her you know um when the police did what they did to mark duggan again we were out there but we don't get the same energy when it comes to black women and i question and i wonder and i'm so interested as to the mechanics of that like when we strip away all of the layers what is at the core of just the apathy felt towards black women and black women's bodies and you know this is why there's often the talk of you know black women existing in the liminalities like we can't really claim the term woman in the same way that society or white women generally within our society claim the term woman because it wasn't constructed the way that they know it that term wasn't constructed for us because of our blackness right so because our blackness already infers something about the humanity that even that in, a, in and of itself is something that Jay Bentle talks about, how humanity in and of itself is a construct of whiteness, because why should we be affording people something that they're inherently born with? But all of these things are happening and the blackness plus our womanness, everything together is almost like they think it's contradictory or it's conflicting. So for that reason, how do we come to support them? How do we, how do we go to, to support these women who we don't really deem as women because we created women to give us a basis really to go for war or, you know, to go to war. If we're fighting for white feminine purity, the basis of all your war is to protect your women from all of these savages. We're not, that's not us. So then we don't get that protection. So it's, it's not something that I feel like I have the answer to for now, but it's definitely, as you know, from my podcast, it's definitely the kind of conversation that I'm so committed to kind of interrogating and understanding because I want to show up for black women the way that I hope that the rest of the world will show up for us. And something that I always find um, useful to consider whenever uh, looking at black history and especially black women's experiences is this idea of the, uh, the triple oppression, which Claudia Jones talks about and Angela Davis talks about. So the different fronts that women face violence in society so gender, race, and class. And Stella, uh, as someone who was involved and still is involved in anti-racist activism, throughout uh, your time seeing the way that society has changed, have you seen um, a willingness, uh, people being more willing to accept the idea of intersectionalism and uh, understanding triple oppression? Yeah, I think most definitely, you know, um, there's far more reference these days to what is termed intersectionality than there ever was in the past. Although I have to say that black women, certainly the black women that I associated with in the 70s and 80s, always organised around the principle of race, class and gender. We knew that for us it was a privilege just to focus on gender. And um, there's no way we could ignore um, the racism that was being, um, uh, which our communities were being subjected to, um, or indeed the economic status that most of us inherited just as a result of, of colonialism. So um, race, gender and class were always there. And I think in more recent years, other isms have been added, you know, whether it's gen um, um, sexuality, disability, there's a whole range of other issues that are beginning to be fed into the mix. 
I do think there's a danger in seeing, in having kind of one size fits all approach. And I also think is there's a danger that people become quite siloed when they begin to look at those different issues that oppress them and try to identify themselves within, within, within that context. So um, race, class and gender, definitely, they're, they're part of our story and they're part of what we need to address. But I also think for us, we can't get away from history. And that means we need to bring in some other aspects of that intersectionality, whether that's the legacies of empire, whether that's the legacies of enslavement, um, all of those things feed into our very unique experience as, as black women. And that means that we can't be too precious about one or other of those boxes or those silos. Um, there is a lot of identity politics at the moment. And um, I've always operated on the principle that unity is strength and that what I share with my other black sisters is more important than what we don't share. Uh, commonalities are more important than our differences. And I really think that's an important message at this time because there is so much divide and rule. There has been so much divide and rule. And when you look at social media, it's working. People are squabbling about stupid shit that doesn't actually have any relevance to the bigger picture. I don't care whether they sing Land of Hope and Glory. I really don't. It doesn't impact, it doesn't affect my life. What affects my life is racism. What affects my life is the chances my children and my grandchildren will be given um, as they move through their, 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 their lives and their careers. Um, so I think it's, it's important that, yes, we buy into intersectionality, that we recognise the importance of seeing all the different facets that make us into the unique human beings that we are, but that we also try to um, draw on the commonalities, the things that we have in common that will become or could be used as a platform to fight this oppression that we face from all sides at the moment. So Stella, I wanted to pick up on a point that Kalechi raised uh, just a second ago about the way that black women in anti-racist uh, struggles often come to the defense of men almost every time, but yet that isn't reciprocated back. And if we look at some of the organizations, some of the black uh, female organizations that came up in the 70s, they uh, were kind of born from uh, a split that happened with um, multi-gender groups such as the British Black Panthers, Black Unity and Freedom Party. So uh, I wanted to ask you, when you were um, a member of OWAD and uh, when all of these other groups were forming, was that formed based on black women feeling silenced by some of the men in the movement? Um, I think certainly for some women that was the case, yeah. I think women felt silenced, women felt ignored, some women felt um, used and um, other women just felt there was a need to put our issues on the table and to take some agency in that struggle. So uh, I think people came to it from all kinds of, of, of motivations, but certainly the sense of, of black men not necessarily addressing the issues that concerned us was one of them. Um, from my own experience, um, I was heavily involved in 
supporting the liberation struggles on the African continent at the time. And um, there were some worrying signs that women who were prepared to literally leave their villages and take up arms in the struggle for liberation, as soon as that struggle was won, whatever that means, they were back um, you know, barefoot pregnant and in the kitchen again. So there was a sense, um, certainly from some black males, that um, for, black, for, for women even to organise separately was in some way, some sense, splitting the struggle or um, you know, not dealing with the most important issues. But of course, we saw it differently. We, we felt that our issues were just as important and that any struggle that talked about black liberation had to take on the 51% of us who were female. So um, that was definitely part of what was going on. I should say though, there were brothers who supported us. There were brothers who manned the creche while we had our conferences, who ran the bookshops and who were there either quietly supporting their partners or indeed actively supporting us in, in terms of demonstrations and so on. So um, it's, 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 it's a more nuanced picture sometimes that it is, is presented. But um, yes, OAD definitely was, was, was founded and developed out of that frustration that women felt that their issues weren't being voiced and weren't being addressed. And I think um, an issue that black women face today especially is this pressure to be visible but also um, but at the same time being invisible. And uh, I say this looking at politicians such as Diane Abbott and uh, Dawn Butler, two people who are often ignored, sidelined and marginalized, but yet uh, by them being visible, uh, visible black women in uh, a very public role, they come under great scrutiny, a scrutiny that we don't see for men, even black men. And collectively, this is something you talk about a lot. So could you talk to me about some of the pressures that black women face once they get to the top, once they reach these positions of power? I think it's a really interesting thing to see misogynoir play out when you are visible. And I feel like um, I'm probably one of the, one of the quite um, visible black women in online spaces. And it's something that I've kind of cultivated over the years, like this kind of stance on being outspoken and learning as I go along, but very much being all about like my black womanhood and, and, and seeing how that kind of interplays with the world around me. And then noticing things like people saying, oh, well, you know, you care about all of these things, but why don't you enter into politics? But can you see what's happening to the black women who are in politics? Can you see how people are, um, you know, blacking up to pretend to, you know, be them doing blackface and all sorts, or, you know, them being um, kind of portrayed as incompetent? The kind of things, the kind of ways that people talk about, talk to Diane Abbott and talk about Diane Abbott. I know that the way that I am, I could not handle that. Like I would have fired back a long time ago, but I know that why she can't. I know why women like her have to kind of hold back in that regard because of the position or the office that, you know, they've, you know, aspire to be in. But I think that that's why spaces like the one I sort of inhabit are required because there has to be, 
I wouldn't call it an antithesis, but there has to be that other, there has to be that duality in like, this black woman isn't going to say anything to you directly. They're still going to present themselves in a particular manner, but I can F and blind as much as I want to, because our black womanhood is not monolithic. Like I well within my rights to do that and still be respected for it because I've noticed that the same aggression, the, you know, Diane Abbott gets what, when they did that, um, you know, um, that research, they found that she received 45% of all of the abuse sent to female MPs, all of them across the board, she received solely 45% of it. And I look at the way that people come at me online and the things that they say to me Mm -hmm. and about me, even when I'm in support of other black women, I've had certain people say to me, oh, that one should shut up and focus on her baby or whatever, you know, they, they just myriad of things that people come out with. So as to silence, me or so as to show that oh well how can you be this when you know your partner's here and he's this or you know there's people are always looking for a reason to delegitimize what i'm saying is what i've said less true because of any of the things that you've come up with possibly not but i've noticed that it's a a sort of smear campaign that people go on and actually some black people join in with it as well and it doesn't surprise me but it is interesting to watch how people say that black women are almost imagining misogynoir while actually they are there perpetuating the very violences that we're speaking about in what they're doing so it's it's a it's a very very interesting space that we find ourselves in um when that labor report came out showing that diane abbott was definitely targeted by her peers in the labor party almost nobody you know spoke up nobody spoke up for her nobody spoke up for dawn butler but david lammy's out there you know speaking up on every other cause and people say oh yeah but you know he kind of found his voice around grenfell and you know the windrush scandal did he or did he find something that's more suited to what he wants to talk about and black womanhood is just not one of those things Mm -hmm. so where where are black women in those spaces getting their support from when they are the sole target of all of the abuse all of the gaslighting it's that's why i feel like i've got that duty to you know whenever i see something happening with any of the black female politicians um who i think are doing a good job i'm not just going to kind of be riding out for everybody but if i see that they are i feel doing a job that helps us then i'm going to speak up for them And both of you are public figures, both of you are people that speak openly about uh, race, around issues to do with gender. But would you say that, you know, having the platforms that you both have, do you feel a certain pressure to outperform and to represent black women? Do you feel feel that pressure? Stella? Um, No, I don't. I I, obviously, I come from a generation that, that predated Twitter and Instagram and that whole social media phenomenon. And I've really consciously chosen not to engage with it. I was quite amused. Um, you know, you were talking about thicker black lines. There's a wonderful young woman, Huda, who, who I was talking to um, uh, some months back. And she said, but that's what we love about you, Stella. You're so inaccessible. <laughs> I, think, I, think I think it's because she'd looked for me on Twitter and couldn't find me. But, you know, I, I, to me, the, just the notion of following somebody or being followed just, just, just doesn't make sense. So in a sense, I've managed to sidestep that. And 
perhaps people will say, think it's irresponsible, but I find my voice through the books that I write and through, obviously, at the moment, through the interviews that I'm giving, I don't feel the need to, 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 to write a daily blog and to do all those other things. Um, having said that, I feel tremendous respect, respect for women who, like yourself, Kalechi, who do that and who are prepared to speak out because somebody has to. And while I may not share the politics of the women we're referring to, the politicians, um, I have to commend their courage because to be in that space is not an easy one. And we're not just talking about verbal abuse, we're talking about the threat of physical violence. Um, Joe Cox um, focused all of our attention on how vulnerable female politicians are. When you add white supremacy to that mix, then you can see that it, it's no easy task to be in the public eye. So um, I don't feel that pressure, Brian, no, because I, I'm very selective about how I, I, how I work that. I know when you were talking about um, um, the pressure on people to, you know, why aren't you in politics? I can remember exactly those questions in, in the late 70s, early 80s. And I think because I already had a career as a teacher, I was able to, to sidestep um, that pressure and say, no, I'm going to stick with the career that I know and where I feel I can have most impact. And I, I don't regret that decision one minute. I, I think um, politics is, is a dirty game and it's very, very difficult, however principled you are, to actually stick to those principles and to retain your self, sense of self. Um, we've only got to look at our current Home Secretary to, to see what can happen um, if you climb that ladder too quickly. Um, you know, we need, if we're going to step into those, those positions, to be absolutely clear that we're going to hold on to who we are, we're going to hold on, on to our principles, we're going to remember where we came from and speak out on behalf of those who don't have a voice. And what I should say, because I think most of our conversation, Brian, has been sort of focused on the UK and uh, the so-called global north or whatever we call it these days, that, you know, that sense of voicelessness extends to women across the globe and in particular to women in our countries of origin on the continent of Africa, in India, in, 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 in countries across the world where you have people who are non-white who are oppressed, who are struggling to survive, who are dealing with injustice. And I think there's an added onus or an added, added responsibility, not an onus, on those of us who do have a voice to speak out um, against those injustices because there's a lot of focus, isn't there, on black lives that matter here, you know, and I'm not in any way undermining the, the, the brutality and the horror of what was um, inflicted not just on George Floyd but as you rightly say on Breonna Taylor too and other nameless people but uh, nameless women I should say but wouldn't it be nice if we all got as angry when we looked at the number of black women who are being raped in the census wars that go on to provide resources that actually make it possible for us to use our mobile phones wouldn't that be nice wouldn't it be nice if we spoke out against all the senseless deaths, COVID aside, of young black children whose lives and potential are cut down before they even have a chance to enter, you know, um, school? Um, those black lives matter as well. And I think my frustration around that, that, that movement at the moment is that somehow it's all about the West. It's all about what happens to us here. So... 
coming back to your question, yes, um, we need to speak out. I don't feel a pressure to do it in any other way than I do at the moment, but I, I do think that those who are in those positions should be absolutely clear that they have a responsibility to speak out on behalf of those who are unvoiced. Um, I totally agree. I don't necessarily feel a pressure to do this. I feel a calling to do it. That's different. Like That yeah. goes beyond what any one, any human, it goes beyond even what I would um, have chosen. I, I just, you know, when I got on social media, I very much saw myself as just an actress. Like I'm an actor, director, and I love dancing, but it's almost as if life kept pushing me in that direction. Like see what's happening over here in your little dance industry. You want to go and teach a twerk workshop and a white woman's telling you, you can't do this because I don't enjoy your style of twerk. I find it basic. and So I've got to kick back against that and noticing that actually this goes beyond just this. This is uh, what we find like how um, the, our culture is appropriated by so many different people, whether we, whether I want to do that thing or the next black woman wants to actually do that thing or not, it doesn't matter. It's the fact that if a black woman were to do it, she'd be vilified for doing that thing. But white women can come along, take it, make it quirky and profit off it. So then that's where we have a problem, you know, fabrics, um, you know, are kind of like indigenous, like cultural, um, like, you know, all the things that we were doing culturally, all of the things that we can look at to trace our histories are being brought into the mainstream. They're being whitewashed and a massive price tag has been put on them while we're still being laughed at as savages. Those were the things that kind of almost nudged me into this position where I had no choice really, but to say, okay, well, I've got to say something about this. And I was already using social media anyway, so why don't I use it more? Oftentimes when I get fearful because you'd be an, a fool to use the platforms like use all of these social media platforms in the way that I use these social media platform and not worry about what that means for you like I, I I'm not a politician I don't have the protection that they possibly have and I do have a particular way with words that is rather crass but why should I be kind of confined to respectability politics if I want to say something and I want to say it a particular way then I'm well within my rights to do that because that jarring kind of nature that I present is something that we do need in the mainstream narrative that black women aren't going to be silenced and if they are seen and heard they're not going to do it the way that you want them to do it so I'm going to be angry I'm going to be crass vulgar all of those things but I'm going to do it in a way that serves me and serves the reason that I'm here in the first place um so I don't feel necessarily that pressure. And when people try to kind of impose that pressure on me, that's when boundaries need to come in. And I make a big point of don't send me any trauma. I don't care if you're another, you know, black person or whatever. Don't, don't directly like direct message, private message me trauma or tag me in trauma. There are ways that you can send me something that you think you should be brought to my attention, but to just, you know, aimlessly just tag me in things. I'm not a rent and angry black woman. I've said that a number of times in my podcast. I have a way of articulating things and I'm more than happy to speak about things that I've gone and researched and I understand what the issue is, but you can't just keep tagging me in things that, you know, I'm human too. Like those things will bring my mood down. I've got to process all of the violence that you're sending me that has kind of been propagated towards women. I've got to process that before I can transmute it and talk about it. So... <laughs> The, the pressure, when I feel it coming from 
other people desperately wanting me to use my voice, I have to remind them that they have a voice too. And actually this works a lot better if all of us that are on these social media platforms choose to be on there rather than expecting one person to speak for you, we have to break these kind of hierarchical um, structures where you think one person's at the top. Oh my God, we need a leader and understand that we are in community together. So you speak out as well. And then I've got you when you're speaking out. It shouldn't just be me doing it all of the time and then taking the hits and getting my, my social media deleted and then reinstated. There's just so much that happens that there has to be a resilience to keep coming back. And that's why I said that, like, I'm grateful that people like yourself, Stella, that you have done this. Like you said, there's no point in reinventing the wheel. You've done this. So it's for us, the, the people who are on social media as black women to take the work that's already been done and say, hey, guys, look, it's, I, I'm not this smart Alex, someone's already done it. I'm just pointing you, I'm just signposting you to where the knowledge is, to where the research is. And I'm very big on that. I'm very big on signposting and directing people to where they need to go to, you know, to get their learning from. This is where I'm learning from. You go and learn from there too. I think the, the nasty thing about social media is that people get on there and it really kind of inflates the ego and you want to be the know-it-all. You want to be the person that people are coming to almost as the oracle in the sense of knowing everything. So you can't afford to say to people, actually, I don't know that or that wasn't my idea. We buy into that capitalist notion of taking someone's things, rebranding it and trying to put it back out there. So the uh, purpose of my social media as you've mentioned Stella about you know it's not just about our western sort of issues it's looking outside of that and having such close you know um ties with my Nigerian heritage seeing what's happening you know even in Nigeria with the sex for grade scandal um I was re uh, um working on a house girls documentary to talk about the sexual abuse that's faced by house girls across the world but most especially in nigeria got it just got cut short by the bbc out of nowhere there are there are things there are there are voices that we need to hear and i want to use the platform that i have to just get those voices heard to just give them my platform not to talk over them but to give them that platform but it's like almost every time that you try these corporations come and just kind of knock it out of the water and that's one of the most fr like frustrating things for me that's where i feel the pressure to not have these numbers in my followers just be there for no reason and i can't actually use it to affect the change that i care about in the first place yeah i wanted to oh, sorry sorry no, I was smiling as you were talking because um, um, so much of what you, you say just, just resonates, Kalechi. Um, you know, when you were talking earlier about, you know, signposting people to the work that's already been done, um, I think it's important that we don't just go rah, 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 somebody was here before doing that. I'm not saying you, you're, you're doing that, but, you know, there's a sense in which a lot of the stuff we see circulated on WhatsApp and in other um media you know it's about bigging up individuals who did this or who said that and i think one of the the important lessons from the way black women organized in the in the 70s and 80s was um that we did organize around the sense of the collective now part of that comes from i in my own case anyway from that from my marxist background and from the sense that you know the community is more important than the individual but I think it was also about self-preservation. Although we didn't have Twitter and we didn't have cancel culture and we didn't have trolling and all those other things that go on today, um, 
what we were dealing with was state brutality, bald-faced. And I, I can remember having a visit when I was a rookie teacher from, I think it was MI5, because of some organisation involved in. And it was a very, very civilised meeting in the sense that um, they sort of alluded to the fact that I wouldn't have liked them to visit me in my place of work, would I? That kind of insidious um, threat, which wasn't explicit, but was definitely there. So for many of us, actually keeping our identity um, hidden was quite an important strategy. And I think nowadays, with so much of the sort of identity politics that I've referred to, people find that quite difficult to get their heads around, the idea that you wouldn't necessarily want to be, um, you know, all about me, myself and I. So I think, um, as I say, those lessons actually probably are worth revisiting because the state is becoming more and more oppressive. And I don't know about you, but I think we're witnessing the rise of fascism and... Um, that um, it is not cuddly, even though the media tries to present it as such, and that we really need to start mobilising to ensure that this thing doesn't get out of hand. Um, we have children and grandchildren to think about, and, um, you know, history is a long time in the making. So if we don't stand up now and be counted, we are looking for some serious times ahead. Now, having said that, the most um, safe way to do that is as a group. I can remember the anti-apartheid movement where when um, issues were, were, were raised and, and communities were accused of certain action, actions, everybody stood forward. Everybody took a step forward and said it was me. And in that way, you hid, you protected, you made sure that it wasn't that easy to pick people off. And I'm not saying that there's anything in history that can be easily translated into the now. I know that things change and, and, and we've developed and we've moved on and definitely um, the new technology um, requires that. I think, as I say, some of those lessons are worth revisiting. These are serious times, you know. Now, whilst we talk about direct action and the importance of people using their platforms, something else that I think is important is self-care and uh, especially for black women to, like you said, Kelechi, to know your boundaries and uh, have them firmly there to know what you will accept and what you won't. So I wanted to ask both of you, what are some of the ways that you take care of yourself spiritually and mentally uh, whilst processing the crazy world? Um, well, if you listen to the podcast, you know I'm, I'm really big on tarot. I love my tarot cards. Um, I'm... I, I found a sense of peace in my exploration of like tarot as well as um, learning more about my heritage in terms of like Yoruba spirituality, like Yoruba cosmology in that sense. And seeing how somewhere there, there's how I reconcile that with growing up in a, I guess, Christian environment and seeing what that looks like for me. But ultimately just taking everybody else out of what it means to be me. Um, and I think that that's what I kind of struggled with growing up. Like, oh, well, this is, this is the pastor and the pastor is the one that gets the messages from God and he's going to kind of like translate it over to you and this is how all of this plays out. That's never really sat well with me. I under, to me, there, it's a direct line. It's a direct line. And it's through that direct line that I've been able to kind of understand 
the energy, I guess, of my ancestors and why I am this way. I feel like growing up, I always tried to change because I knew that I was very kind of out there, very outspoken, that there was this sort of really kind of visceral fiery energy that I had that I kept being told that's not how you behave you don't do that you don't you know you don't do those things but understanding that no that's exactly how I show up in this world and that's exactly how I'm going to use it to do the things that I want to do that helped me to always helping me to have a more comfort in just being in myself and being in my body and on top of that as I know it's a privilege but having a therapist like I work bloody hard to be able to have money so I can pay for a therapist because initially I was you know going through the NHS um and that whole convoluted process is is wild to me it's wild to me that that's what we've got to do to have any sense of kind of you know equilibrium somehow of whatever so Therapy really helps me having a black woman that I can speak to on a you know weekly basis about the things that go on in the world. And I don't have to kind of explain it to her. I can just say that this happened and, and go from there about how I feel about it. Not, are you sure that it happened or why do you think it was that way or any of that stuff? So that helps me show up um, as more of um, myself and linked to the spirituality stuff, just prayer. I, I, I for me to be able to do all of this or to move through the world as a black woman, I just have to believe that there's more to this, that, 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 that there's more than what we're seeing in the immediate sense. And that's what's helped me to assert my boundaries and um, to really wake up every single day and be like, yeah, let's do it again, I guess. That's literally my first thought every day. Like, oh, I'm awake. All right, cool. Let's do it again. What about you, Stella? Um, the things that have helped me survive through my life, definitely exercise. Um, for many years, I, I had a second career when I was a single parent. I was working in education, but I was also teaching uh, fitness in the evening. And in a way, that was a form of therapy because any frustrations in the day, I could go into the gym and get out of my class. Um, so that's always been really important to me. I think a healthy body is definitely part of what creates a healthy mind. In terms of what feeds my spirit, um, I have had some encounters with therapy through my life. That neither of them were particularly um, um, inspiring. I'm sure they were useful at, at the time. But I think the most effective therapists through my life have been the women I know. Um, you know, whether aunties, grandmothers, um, my stepmother, um, my, my sisters and my, my women friends, um, they're the people I go to when there are things that need to be resolved or worked through. And why we, we may not always agree on everything, I think um, I, I hugely value the input that I get from them. They, they keep me grounded, they keep me centred. Um, so friendship and, and family, all of those things, I think, are really hugely important. Um, like you, I really do um, think it's important to keep my sense of my roots, my ancestry. Um, like you, I'm from West Africa. My father's Ghanaian. My mother's English. My father's Ghanaian. So I straddle both. But I was very fortunate in that I was travelling backwards and forwards to Ghana from quite an early age. So... 
I've always had that sense of self that comes from being in an African culture where you see black people around you doing all kinds of roles and where you're not deferring to racism, you're not defined by racism. Um, that's been hugely important and um, continues to be. And I, I think it's something that um, women have to be instrumental in passing on because it is part of our survival strategy. Um, what else do I want to say? Yes, I absolutely love nature. Um, when I need to um, take a breath and exhale, I go into my garden, which is the size of a postage stamp. But to me, it's, 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 it's glorious that I can look at a flower, that I can see nature around me, I can hear birdsong. I think all of those things are regenerative and a reminder that we are part of something bigger, as you say, Kalechi, we're not just us. Um, it's very easy, I think, in this day and age, just to be so centred on your own navel, to forget how small and insignificant we are in the scheme of things. You've only got to look at the night sky to get a sense of how very small we are and how very connected we are to this whole universe that we're part of. Like you, I don't know whether when we die we fall asleep and don't wake up or whether we move into a separate plane. I like to think the latter, but who knows? None of us do. So I think we have to feed that sense of connectedness with the earth, with the land, with nature, with the sky, with um, the, the planets and all of that, and just remind ourselves that we're part of something bigger. I, I've always loved that um, poem, Desiderata, you know, that, that talks okay. about, you know, yeah. we're part of something bigger, the universe probably unfolding the way it's meant to, even though it doesn't necessarily yeah. feel that way always. I think that's yeah. a useful thing to remind ourselves of. And I think lastly, I would say that my art and my writing, you know, um, being able to throw a paint at a canvas or to sit down with a pen or on your laptop and just get it out of your system, I think is really, really useful and important. And um, again, it enables us to connect with others who, who will see that piece of art or who will read that, that, that piece of writing and say, yes, that's how I feel. Yes, they've said exactly what I wanted to say. And I think that's part of what we try to do as black women. We try to feed off each other. We try to learn from each other and to comfort each other and to big each other up. And all of that is part of what helps to sustain our mental health. Yeah, yeah. Well, Stella Dadzi, Kalechi Okafor, thank you so much for joining me on Tell a Friend. And before we go, I wanted to remind everyone to go and check out Stella's book, A Kick in the Belly, which is coming out when, Stella? When's the... When um, it's actually officially due out on the 20th of October. On the 20th of October. Um, I, um, I think a lot of people realise, you know, the traditional launch events with book signings and what have you aren't likely to happen this year, but... I think there's going to be quite a lot of activity on Zoom and um, possibly on the mainstream media as well. Who knows if they pick it up? So just keep an eye open for it. And, um, you know, happy reading. Must um, that people won't just look at the horror story that is the backdrop to this, this, this piece, but also the wonderful stories of resistance and resilience that come through it and which make us smile and which make us recognize ourselves in in those those women who came before us i think that's a really important um 
thing that I hope others will take from that book. And also, I want everyone to check out Kelechi's podcast, Say Your Mind. And Kelechi, do you have anything else you'd like to people to check out? Um, no, I feel like everything, I, I put it all out there on the podcast. So that's, that's a great intro. Okay, thank you. <laughs>